thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientist with me, Sue Marchant and Chris Smith. Now, Vicky has uh, rung in to say that she has loads of frog spawn in her pond. Is it rather early for this? I think it's about the right time because frogs and lizards and newts and things begin to wake up from their winter sleep in about mid-February and then they start making for ponds because, contrary to popular belief, most of these animals don't live in the water. Although they're amphibians and they have to return to the water to mate, they spend most of their life on land and they only go to the water to mate. So they'll start looking for the nearest patch of water, they'll head down to the water and then they start croaking. And they'll croak so that the males and females can find each other. And therein lies a really exciting story because there was a researcher based in China and he was working on some frogs called... Uh, long called, I think they were torrent frogs they were called mm. and these frogs are really interesting because they live in such a noisy environment that they couldn't possibly hear each other croaking and what these researchers discovered is that the frogs croak at each other using ultrasound because this prevents the noisy water drowning out the sounds of their croaking noises so they can still hear each other. Isn't that neat? That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Now Merlin sent an email in to say, um, why is it, Dr Chris, that whatever colour your bubble bath or your washing up liquid is or anything that's got bubblies on, um, you know, pink, green, yellow, the bubbles are always white. The reason for that is because the thing that's the colourant is at very low concentration. You don't need to add much colourant to make the bubble bath or the detergent look a certain colour. But then when it goes into the water, it gets very heavily diluted. So it only adds a small amount of colour to the water as a whole, which is why if you have a dark-coloured bubble bath and you pour it in the bath, then the water might look more blue or more green or perhaps even more red, depending upon what your tastes are, than it normally would. When it makes a bubble, though, the actual thickness of the bubble film is literally nanometers it's perhaps 100 200 300 nanometers so in other words about 10 thousandth of a millimeter thick very very thin the the wall of a bubble and there's so little space there that there's just not enough room to pack in the molecules which give something its color in enough concentration to make that color instead you'll see that the bubbles are a beautiful rainbow effect bit like looking at oil on water. Yeah. And that's because you're seeing the same effect in the surface of a bubble as you do when you float oil on top of water. So why do you get that rainbow effect? It's because the bubble is actually made of oily material and the layers of oily material are different thicknesses. In some cases they're just one molecule thick. In other places there might be lots of molecules stacked up on top of each other. And when a ray of light hits the surface of the bubble, it can do several things. In some cases it just bounces straight back off the bubble. In other cases it goes into the bubble a short distance and bounces off one of those other layers, and sometimes it goes right through and bounces off the other side of the bubble. Now this means that the same light ray may have travelled several different distances in doing those journeys. And when you take one 
set of light waves and add them to another set of light waves, if the light waves have travelled slightly different distances, then the waves are said to be out of phase. So, in other words, they don't map onto each other anymore. And when you add them together, they can do what's called interfere. And this is where they partly cancel each other out. And so, certain wavelengths of light will cancel each other out. And this means that certain colours will disappear. Other colours will become brighter, and that's why you see the rainbow effect. Thank you very much. Now then, there's a question that's come in. But the question is, Dr. Chris, why do some people talk faster than others? Is it nerves? That's from Mike. The people that are in the Guinness Book of Records for talking really quickly are amazing. You listen to them and you think that can't honestly make sense, and then you slow the recording down, and they really are managing to speak that quickly. It's unintelligible.、Um, I think it's down to excitement, and I'm as guilty as the next person. When I get excited about something, and I've got all these ideas coming into my head,、yes. and I want to convey them, and I want to get as much information over as I can, and I want to do it infectiously, and you just speed up. I think it's sort of human nature because when something's exciting. It might also be dangerous, or it might mean that there's a big reward. And if you can communicate what you want people to do or to know about as fast as possible, then、yeah. the reward could be even bigger. So I think that's probably the basis for it. Because when you get excited or you get nervous, their manifestations pretty much are the same thing, and that's just the release of adrenaline from the adrenal glands, which sit on top of your kidneys.、Mm. And the whole point of adrenaline is that it keys you up. It's fight or flight. And that includes getting excited. So when you have a big adrenaline rush and you get excited, then all the same mechanisms kick in. And I think that probably includes talking a bit too quick. Right. Okay. Now the next one. Are there any deciduous trees in the tropics? That's from John. I think、uh, there are lots of deciduous trees in the tropics, but there are very few seasons. If you look at the equator, because the Planet is hardly moving at all, and because it's tilted at an inclination of about twenty-three and a half degrees at the moment, does move a little tiny bit, has a wobble over forty thousand years or so. But at the tropics, of course, on the equator, that wobble is not particularly pronounced, and so there's no definite winter and summer. And so trees there just have their own kind of season where they produce some leaves, the leaves drop off, and then they make some more. So you. Do see deciduous trees, and the matter falling from the canopy onto the forest floor is an important way in which you recycle nutrients through from the canopy down into the forest floor and into various fungi and other things that are on on the forest floor to recycle those nutrients. But you you don't generally see seasons, so you don't see a massive fall all at once like you see in the northern and southern hemispheric extremes.、Mm. Let's go to this one. Frances was very prone to travel sickness as a child, and her mum made her sit on a newspaper. And it did the trick. Why might that be? I've no idea. It sounds like a bit of an urban legend to me. I'm going to have to think about that, but I don't think there's any proper scientific basis. I think it's probably a distraction because,、yeah. in the same way as the placebo effect, means that you feel less pain if someone says, "Take this tablet; it will make you feel better." And about thirty percent of the time, people will get better. I think it's probably something similar, where if you give someone something to distract them, it takes their mind off of focusing. On the thing which is making them feel uncomfortable, and as a result, they don't feel so uncomfortable. And with travel sickness, a lot of this is because you begin to feel a bit unpleasant, but then you focus on the symptoms you're experiencing, and because you're paying attention to them, they feel worse and they magnify, and this makes you feel worse, and the whole thing goes round in a vicious circle, and then you do really feel sick. So I suspect the newspaper is probably a distraction.、Mm, I know one of those things. If I、um, sit in the car, travelling, and I'm reading, I can't do it. It just makes me feel so. 
Yes, I can do it for a certain period of time. I can read for only so long, and then I I can sort of feel the kind of discomfort building up, and、mm. I know that there's a certain period I can get to, and I think right, I have to stop now, otherwise I'm really going to suffer.、Mm. But on the whole, I, I'm I'm pretty robust. I don't luckily suffer from too much travel sickness. But I mean, it's all down to neurology, isn't it? Because your brain compares what the signals are that are coming from your inner ear, saying this is what your body's doing, with what your eyes are saying is going on. Of course, your eyes are looking at the horizon, and that doesn't seem to be moving, and so there's this big disparity in your head. Between what you think you should be doing and what's actually happening to you, and this is what seems to trigger this sensation of, of feeling sick. And not everyone seems to be susceptible. Some people are more more susceptible than others. Now Graham has called in. He says he needs to lose three and a half stone. How long will it take him to burn it off on an exercise bike? Calories per hour, or something like that, is the note by the side of it. Okay,、um, fat is a very efficient way of storing energy. That's why the body uses it. So when we take energy into the body, whether it's in the form of fat or sugar or protein, it all ends up as a common currency in the body, which is this material called acetyl-CoA. And acetyl-CoA is two carbon atoms stuck together with another group jammed on the side. And this is added to something called the Krebs cycle, which is then fed into all the other energy pathways in the cell. Or it's fed into making something which is a pathway which can produce fat. So if you have energy spare after you've eaten and you've you've used the energy you need to use to to do your daily activities, then the excess is turned into the storage molecule fat. And the reason is that fat is very light, so it doesn't bind water. So it's a good light way of storing a lot of energy. But obviously, if you have too much of it, that can be a bad thing. But because fat stores a lot of energy, it means that it takes a long time to burn it off. Now, some simple energy calculations come into play here. So, if you were to sit on the sofa and do nothing, your body, just by existing, burns off about 60 calories every hour. If you go for a walk, you'll burn off between 300 and 350 calories every hour. So, that's a, a reasonable walk. If you go for, say, a jog or a, a mild, gentle swim, that's about 540 calories an hour. And if you go mountaineering, mountain climbing, and serious exertion, that can be up to 700 calories an hour. Now, the average person needs about 2,500 calories a day if you're male, and about 2,000 calories if you're female. And about half of those, 55% or so, will just go in what's called your basal metabolic rate, just existing. Means that you burn off energy. So, if you want to lose weight, the best plan is to look at why you gained weight in the first place. And this point was made to me by Tony Steer, and she's a researcher with the MRC Dun Nutrition Unit down at Adam Brooks Hospital in Cambridge.、Mm. And she said that a lot of people put themselves on a diet; they'll lose a lot of weight very successfully. Congratulations to them. But the point that they miss is why did they gain the weight in the first place? Because as soon as they've lost the weight, they then go back to the lifestyle they had before they started dieting. And that's the lifestyle that got them fat in the first place. And so the ideal thing to do is to identify what it is about your lifestyle which means that you gained the weight in the first place, make some changes, and then aim for a very gentle weight loss regimen so that you then don't relapse and gain lots of weight again later. Because if you try and lose too much weight too quickly, then what happens is you get really miserable, you get really depressed, and you you will just give up.、Mm. And then you'll binge on high calorie things like chocolate. And this means that you'll yo-yo back up to a higher weight than you were before. So the best plan is to increase the amount of exercise, because exercise involves lean tissue, and lean tissue is very good at burning off body fat and burning energy. It's the big contributor to your basal metabolic rate. So some gentle exercise is a good thing. You need to reduce the amount you eat by a certain amount. So if you know roughly how many calories you get through in a day, you need to reduce those calories by between 500 and 1,000 calories a day. And so the combination of light exercise 
and less calorie intake will translate into weight loss. And then you've got to make sure that when you do stop losing weight, that you don't then relapse and start mm. gaining it again. So you've got to keep the exercise up, for example. Mm. Right, let's go on to one here. Dr. Chris from Gary. Um, when you watch a fly indoors, they seem to fly in little straight lines, then turn at right angles. Is there any reason? Uh, there was an interesting study which we put on the Naked Scientist last week, which was looking at how sharks and actually shoppers in supermarkets move around. Mm. And the way in which sharks and fish do their hunting is that they make lots of little movements in one area and then they fly or swim a considerable distance and then they make lots of little movements in another. So if you were in a shop, what you would do is you were looking for something. It's worth looking carefully in one particular area, but then going a long way away and then looking carefully in that particular area because it maximises your chances of finding what you're looking for. In the case of a person in, in a shop, mm. they're looking for a tin of something. In the case of a shark in the wild, they're looking for the next fish that they can eat or something. Mm. Um, it's possible that flies are doing something similar in that they'll fly around in a certain area looking for something interesting and then they'll fly along away and then do the same thing. But the one thing flies have a very good sense of is smell. And they do that using uh, antennae and, and hairs on the surface of the fly which have got lots of nerve fibres on them which are very sensitive to molecules in the air that we would sense as smells well flies just detect them in the same way so what they're doing is trying to follow the gradient of of the smell that they're tracking so the way that they do that is by flying backwards and forwards across the smell in order to work out where it's coming from because they're comparing how strong it is in position a with position b and that's why they make these cross movements because they're able to compare the gradients and they're looking for food basically they're looking for places to lay their eggs and, and that kind of thing so i'd suggest it, it's probably hunting out food behavior and it's it's sniffing out where things that they find attractive in the environment are coming from mm. all right your next question dr chris flooding might cause problems so is it possible to remove salt from oceans to reduce <coughs> levels that's from jake of Ipswich. Unfortunately I don't think it is because there's just so much of it. The oceans have been accumulating for about the last four and a bit billion years on Earth. They rise at the rate of a couple of inches every 20,000 years. Most of the water on Earth we think arrived in the form of comets. Mm. So when the planet first formed it was just a rocky body and when comets which were left over vestiges of the birth of our solar system actually collided with the Earth because comets are effectively dirty dust balls, icy dirt balls or something people call them, they got a lot of water on board and they crashed into the earth and deposited it and because there are minerals in the rocks on earth that are soluble, the water just soaks them up and when it rains, you get rain landing on the ground, this dissolves more minerals from the ground, goes into rivers, those rivers run into the sea, carry more minerals into the sea, so the sea is continuously becoming more salty but at the same time salt is naturally being removed by chemical reactions which is why the sea has got to a certain saltiness and stopped there. I don't think we'd have much to gain by taking the salt away. It would use enormous amounts of energy, and that energy's got to come from somewhere. That would probably make the greenhouse effect much worse, and so we'd all end up in much more trouble. Uh, we've got Eric on the line with a question, Chris. Hello, Eric. Hello, Sue. Hello, how are you? Oh, not too bad. All right, you're through to Dr Chris. Uh, I'm an ex-lorry driver. And the thoughts crossed my mind that all the big lorries are fitted with limiters, right, so they can't go above a certain speed. My question is this, is if they can do it to big lorries, why can't they do it to cars? There's absolutely no reason why you can't. The thing is that lorries are much easier to control because there's fewer of them. 
There are lots and lots of cars on the road and there just hasn't been the motivation yet to do it. But there are lots and lots of systems being tested now which could do this very effectively. In fact, they want to take it one step further and make the car actually respond to beacons which are built into the side of the road which tells the engine you will not go above a certain speed and so the person can put their foot flat to the floor and the car will still go along at the speed limit. And this is a system that's been tested, it works very well, and they're talking about introducing this in this country in the future. So from a certain date, all new cars would have to have it. Several of the lorries that I've driven in the past, when you came to, especially roadworks on motorways, where the speed limit is 40 miles an hour, you just twisted a knob on the dashboard and the lorry wouldn't go above it. Yes, that would be very sensible, wouldn't it? Mm. The other point that various people who work on this kind of thing and mathematicians are very interested in traffic flow because you can see some really interesting maths developing and how say traffic jams form there's a paper been published in the last week or so by japanese scientists looking at this but the point that's being made at the moment is you wouldn't actually need to make all cars have a speed limiter all you'd need is a few cars with them and once you get above a critical number they would hold up all the other traffic anyway and this would prevent any kind of speeding going on as, as it is. So I don't think it'll be very long before they do this, actually, Eric. Mm. Lovely. Thank you very much. Oh, bye-bye. OK, bye-bye. Now, Chris, more questions. Um, why is the moon held by Earth's gravity, but an astronaut is weightless? OK, well, the, the Earth attracts the moon because the Earth is very, very large, and the gravitational pull of the, mo- of the Earth pulls on the moon. The moon is also very, very big, so it has a gravitational pull on the Earth, and so those two effects hold the Moon in orbit around the Earth. The effect is similar to if you have a tennis ball on the end of a piece of string and you whiz the ball round in a circle. The string is continuously pulling on the ball, pulling it towards your hand, and so the ball has to move in a circle, because if you didn't have that force from the string, then the ball would go off in a straight line, and you can demonstrate that because if you cut the string at some point, the ball would just fly off in a straight line at a tangent to wherever it was when you cut the string. Now, your astronaut who's in space isn't actually moving in a straight line. He's in free fall all the time. He's also in a circular orbit. And although he feels weightless, at the same time, he's still being pulled upon by gravity to stop him escaping from the Earth, and and he actually goes around in a big circle. And that's why the International Space Station and the astronauts inside it do actually orbit the Earth. They're in a constant state of free fall, falling towards the Earth. Must play um, havoc with your indigestion, I would think. Uh, let's get on to another one here. Peter in Spalding asks, is it a fact that animals and birds can detect storms, earthquakes, etc., long before that we can? They all seem to go quiet before it happens. There's some evidence that animals are very attuned to environmental events and they can respond to some of the signals that predate or presage the arrival of, say, a storm system. Because if you think about it, some storms occur when there's, say, a nice patch of clear weather, and this might herald the arrival of a storm in the future because the environmental conditions are building up towards a storm. And some animals can learn that when the weather does thing X, subsequently there's going to be event Y. And so they can actually plan ahead. They can detect the arrival of things like rain and stuff like that. In terms of of seismic events like earthquakes, not even humans can detect that using the most expensive computers in the world. We can't predict when they're going to happen. All we can do is to have a look at where the fault zones are on Earth and we can make predictions that at some point in the future something's going to happen there but we don't know with any kind of decent real-time resolution when it's going to happen. Now, some people said when we had the earthquake in the UK last week uh, that that their animals behaved a bit strangely or seemed to be able to predict that something's going to happen. But, in fact, what they were probably doing is they were talking about the way their animals behaved in the time span of the actual earthquake because these earthquakes originate from very deep down in the ground, perhaps five or six miles. In the case of the one last week, it was about five to ten miles underground near Grimsby. 
and it takes a while for the vibrations that are triggered by that movement of, of rock against itself to percolate up to the surface and some sound is going to arrive in, uh, first and then the vibration is going to build up, the resonance is going to build up. So it might be that animals are very sensitive to the initial arrival of those vibrations and it's that that they were responding to when people said their pets went a bit quiet or their dog stopped barking or started barking when this happened last week. That would be my suspicion. All right, well, uh, John has sent a text in about uh, the causes of pancreatic cancers and the symptoms, and, of course, uh, the news about Patrick Swayze springs to mind there. First of all, though, before we answer that one, Ian is on the phone with a question. Hello, Ian. Uh, hello, hello, Sue. Hello there, you're through to Dr Chris. Hello, Chris. Hi, Ian. What is the difference between uh, burning fat and burning calories? There is, is there no difference, difference, to be honest, Ian. Uh, on my um, heart rate monitor, you know, it, it lets you know how many calories you burn per hour. And fat. The, the difference between, say, burning fat and burning sugar is just the amount of energy that they contain. So if you look at, say, fat, the amount of energy in a certain weight of fat is about nine times the amount of energy in the same weight of sugar. So in other words, there's much more energy density in fat than there is in sugar. And protein sits somewhere between the two. So, in other words, you'd have to do a lot more exercise to lose the same amount of weight in fat as you would sugar. No, it's just, uh, you know, I can burn a lot of calories, but it also says I burn a hell of a lot of fat as well. You might be burning a lot of fat, but if you've just eaten a bag of sugar, I can guarantee that your body would preferentially use the bag of sugar because so sugar's much that... easier to metabolise. Yeah, so that's carbohydrate, isn't it? It is. And there's a biochemistry textbook called Stryer, which every medical student buys when they first go to medical school. And they have a very important paragraph in there. And it says, fats burn in the fire that's created by carbohydrates. So your body has this sort of carbohydrate fire where it's burning glucose and turning that into carbon dioxide. So one molecule of glucose is C6H12O6. And you add to that six molecules of oxygen, 6O2, and what comes out is six CO2, six molecules of carbon dioxide, six molecules of water, and also lots of energy. Now that is the fire that you can feed fat into, and when you add fat to that fire, you get lots of energy out. But you've got to have that fire burning on glucose first before you can burn the fat. One other thing, Chris, if you don't mind. What sort of build would burn more calories? A sort of a muscular build or a, a build where they're carrying a wee bit more fat? You often hear people that are a bit overweight might say, it's my metabolism. Now, there are very few conditions where your metabolism will make you carry too much weight. Um, there's one, and that's where the thyroid is a bit underactive. But that's, by far and away, only a tiny minority of the number of cases of people with a bit too much weight. The people who carry a bit too much weight probably have a higher metabolic rate than I do. In other words, they're burning more calories. And the reason for that is that you're carrying around a lot of extra weight. It's a bit like if I gave you a bag of potatoes to hulk around with you. And that burns energy. It takes a lot of effort to carry around potatoes. And you're carrying around that weight on your body all the time. You're doing work. You need to provide the energy from somewhere. So someone right. who's highly muscular, though, so say they weigh the same as someone who's quite lazy. So they're, they're the same weight as the muscular person. So the weight must be extra fat rather than muscle they will probably have a slightly lower metabolic rate than the person who's really muscular because muscle burns energy. It's lean tissue and it's your big energy-burning tissue. Right, and when you say big energy-burning tissue, do you mean like burns a lot of calories? Yes, I do. You need muscle because it's a very effective way to burn off calories. And 
that's why exercise is really good in terms of weight loss. Because if you do exercise, you preserve your muscle, and since muscle is a very good way to burn calories, not only are you burning calories by doing exercise, you're also boosting the amount of muscle you have, and therefore increasing your capacity to actually burn off calories. So if you've got a little bit more, say, a little bit more muscle, lean muscle, by rights you'd be burning more calories for the same amount as work as a person would who's perhaps a bit, a bit overweight, a bit fat. It would depend on whether they weighed the same as you. If, if they're right. actually shunting round the same weight as you, but they're very muscular and you're very fat, you weigh the same, though, then probably the muscular person, because they've got a lot more lean tissue, is going to have a higher metabolic rate yep, than yep. the fatter person. Right. Thanks a lot, Chris. Good luck with your muscles, it's a pleasure. Ian. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> Take B- care. Bye. Bye-bye. Um, the causes of pancreatic cancers? Well, the, the problem with pancreatic cancer is that we don't actually know what causes it. There are some things that are associated with it, and by that I mean if you do certain things, you're more likely to get pancreatic cancer. And there are some genetic conditions that have been linked to it. Uh, these are conditions which trigger the formation of tumours in the, in the pancreas. They're quite rare, though. Mm. Um, but what we do know is that smoking is definitely associated with pancreatic cancer. So if you smoke, then you are increasing your risk of that. Um, other than that, it's, it's a very nasty cancer to get because it tends to turn up or present very late. Um, by that I mean that by the time you tend to get symptoms from it, it's already quite advanced, and this means it's very hard to treat because it's likely to have spread. Um, the likely presentation, in other words, how people would tend to turn up at the doctors with mm. pancreatic cancer, is that they suddenly and abruptly go yellow. And this is because the bile from the liver, which drains into the, from the gallbladder, below the liver, Mm. into the intestine, which helps you to absorb fats from your diet, Mm. has to pass through the head of the pancreas. And the pancreas adds to that duct pancreatic juice, which is also used in digestion. And if you have a tumour at the head of the pancreas, which is quite a common site for getting cancers in the pancreas, it can squeeze on the duct and block it so the bile can't get out. And as a result, it backs up and then tips over into the bloodstream. And bile is a yellow colour, so it makes you look yellow. And that's called jaundice. So lots of people just present with jaundice and also because the bile, when it gets into your intestines, gets modified by bacteria and turned into a dark pigment called stercobilin, people also say that what they put down the toilet, their faeces, turn a pale colour. They go a sort of pale clay colour. And this can be one sign of pancreatic cancer. But... The good news is that there's also another condition that will produce almost the same symptoms, and that's if you have gallstones, because if you get some gallstones, which are crystals of of the Mm. salts that are in bile, if one of those goes down the duct and blocks it, it can produce the same kind of yellow pigmentation of the skin. Uh, The difference is that it is often painful, and this is how doctors often discriminate pancreatic cancer from gallstones, because gallstones produce very characteristic pain, Often after you eat a fatty meal, you get this pain. It's a colicky pain. It stays there for quite a while, and then it goes away. And pancreatic cancer is often painless. Um, Luckily, it can be diagnosed quite quickly with a scan, Mm. and there are various operations that people can have which can offset some of the effects of the cancer, but it is very, very difficult to treat. Right, Okay. well done, Chris. And um, one here about um, somebody who has a little boy who has lots of um, nosebleeds. He's six. He's had three nosebleeds today. It happens quite frequently, but uh, there are long breaks between it happening. Um, Why is it happening and should it be checked out? He's six and he's having waves of three or more nosebleeds at a time. 
It might be worth, if this is a regular problem, getting someone to take a look because your blood should clot fairly easily and you shouldn't get lots of nosebleeds. But if it's coupled with other symptoms like easy bruising, then I'd be a little bit worried and it might be worth getting him checked out just to make sure everything's okay. But the commonest cause of nosebleeds actually is your index finger, in other words, the picking finger. And whenever you see someone in the hospital or in the doctor's surgery who says they're having nosebleeds, you always have a look at the fingers mm. and especially under their fingernails to see mm. if there's uh, signs of dried blood there because mm. lots of people will pick their nose and they irritate the membranes or, or damage the very very delicate membranes on the inside of the nose and this dislodges scabs and things and it makes them bleed and kiddies are notorious for picking their noses yeah. and that will trigger those kind of things because trauma to the nose other reasons why you can get nosebleeds are virus infections and bacterial infections when you get a nasty cold you've got a virus which is replicating or growing in the tissues in your nose and it injures the tissue and causes inflammation at the same time. And the injury can then be super-infected. You can get a bacterium coming in on top of the virus and, and growing there, and this further compounds the injury, and blood vessels get damaged, and they tend to ooze blood. And that's why when you have a bad cold or something, or, or a sinus infection, mm. and you blow your nose, you can sometimes see flecks of blood on the handkerchief. But if this is allowed to carry on for a while, and you keep irritating it by vigorous nose-blowing, and also picking your nose then it can make you have a nosebleed. If you start to have regular nosebleeds, very regular and heavy, and they take ages to stop, this is probably something much more sinister or more worrying, and, and that definitely warrants being checked out. Now, um, the other one here is about um, food labelled in kilocalories, not ordinary calories. What on earth does it mean? Bill wants to know. OK, well, we have this definition of, of energy, and you can measure energy as joules, or you can measure energy in calories. And that's a bit like the difference between an inch and a centimetre. They're both measures of length. They're just different scales or different ways of measuring how long something is. Well, and this is the energy equivalent. Uh, you can have joules or kilojoules, and in the same way you can have calories or kilocalories. And killer, the suffix killer, prefix killer, sorry, means times a 1,000. So rather than talking about 4,200 calories, you can talk about 4.2 kilocalories. But... Interestingly, most people, when they're talking about calories, are actually referring to kilocalories, not calories. So they've already done the multiplication in their head and they just miss off the kcal. They just call them calories. It's one of those things, you look at food labels and you think, right, yes, this, this and this and this and this. And I don't know, I'm, I'm just more and more, I'm hardly buying any you know, pre-prepared food or anything like that because I just want to stay away from it. I don't understand it. One thing I did try this morning was some aloe vera. Why is it so good for you, aloe vera? The actual plant aloe vera, it grows in warm countries and it has these succulent stems and you can squeeze out the pulp from the plant. And it's got uh, anti-inflammatories in it. They've got mm. aspirin-like effects and it's very good for, uh, for, as an after-sun treatment in yeah. fact if you have sunburn you can apply it to the skin and it has this aspirin like antioxidant and anti-inflammatory effect it blocks the inflammation that that sunburn triggers and so it's just anti-inflammatory and that's how it works one here bill in cambridgeshire says is there a natural sedative available to help combat the fear of flying uh, yeah i think they call it john smith's or uh, brandy or vodka that's the best natural sedative, I think, isn't it? Some people um, have a drink before they go on the aeroplane. But you should be careful with this strategy, in fact, because yes. um, alcohol is very dehydrating. And having just taken a couple of long flights, both to America and South Africa for various reasons, I was very conscious of the fact that it's incredibly dry, the air on an aeroplane. They mm. 
because they've got 300 people in, a, in the equivalent of a baked bean tin flying along at 500 miles an hour in the air, those people are breathing out a lot of water. In the average day, uh, the, most people are breathing out at least between half a, and a, half a litre and a litre of water each a day. So you can imagine all that water will be dripping off the ceiling after a 12-hour flight. So the air conditioning on aeroplanes scrubs out all the water. And this results in very dry air, which dehydrates people even more. And if you get more de dehydrated, not only do you feel bad, but it makes your blood volume drop, and this makes your blood sludgier and stickier, and it therefore increases the risk of you having economy class syndrome. This is assuming you travel in economy class, mm. um, which is where you get blood clots. And this can, of course, lead to pulmonary embolism when the blood clot comes from the veins in the legs, usually, and might makes its way up to the lungs. So it's worth staying well hydrated on an aeroplane, especially if you do have a drink. But alcohol, I, I find alcohol is very good at uh, calming the nerves under those circumstances. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. 